If you're someone who's passionate about transforming education, which you are if you're listening to this podcast, you should check out the Charles Koch Foundation. The Charles Koch Foundation supports social entrepreneurs and organizations that are embracing innovation to build better solutions for today's learners. Visit ckf.org to learn more. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast. Where me, let me try that again. Where we make education your business. I'm going to leave that in. It shows you that I do mess up, which happens basically on every single episode that I do here of the Ed Up Experience podcast. I am. Uh, we are broadcasting or recording live here from Elusian Live in Denver, Colorado. They've been so kind to allow us to keep our uh, podcast episodes that we have scheduled. I didn't want to reschedule on my guest today because I've already done that once. And then he, I got a little nasty gram from his team and he's like, no, I didn't really. They're like, we, we want Quentin now. I'm like, me too. I've really got to get him on. And now I'm blowing up my whole intro because I usually like to bring in people separately. Before I do anything else or mess anything else up, I'm going to bring in my guest co-host today. You know her. You heard her before. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. She's Linda Garza Battles, and she's the chancellor of WGU Texas. Linda, what's happening? Hey, Joe. Uh, just a beautiful day here in Austin, Texas. I'm excited about uh, embarking on this interview with uh, our next guest and uh, excited for you, Joe, to be in, in Denver. Uh, lots of excitement there, I'm sure. Lots of excitement, lots of people coming by. That's why it messed up. You know, I mess up things because somebody walks by me and I'm like, wondering what's going on and then i'm trying to look at my computer screen i'm trying to hit the right sound effect for you which was a drum roll which wow. i thought was pretty effective right i love it i feel like that properly introduces you <laughs> so um but we're excited to talk with our guest today he he is uh he's a man on a mission let me just say that here he comes ladies and gentlemen i gotta i gotta make sure the crowd stands up for him he is Dr. Quentin Wright, and he's the founding president of Lone Star College, Houston North. Quentin Wright, how are you? I am doing well. I am doing well. Thanks for having me today. Oh, what an honor it is to have you here, my friend. A founding president, right? This is like kind of a big deal, right? Um, you tell, tell me what that process, because you've been in uh, Lone Star College for a while. You've had different roles. You've almost every role i think if there was somebody that had ev almost every role in a college you've almost done it. uh the the uh what do they call it when you get a in baseball it's the when you go all around the different bases and a home run what do you call that the cycle yeah you've yeah. done the cycle oh. quentin there you go pretty close tell, to tell it. me about how this happens for you to become the founding president well, you know, uh, a few years ago, I started working on a project related to equity, specifically uh, to bridge completion gaps with some of our uh, certain demographics, especially like black males, for instance. Um, from that work, we learned pretty early on that, you know, we need more than just kind of small scale programs in order to bring about, you know, the type of change we need. We need an entire structural change. Um, and after looking at some specific data points with some specific communities, we decided to do something a little different. And that's how Lone Star College Houston North came about. Okay, so first of all, that's amazing. But what is the something different and how does it happen at Lone Star College Houston North that maybe other institutions aren't doing in the same way? Hey, that's a great question. So we studied for about a couple of years. I mean, traveled the country. Uh, just trying to find best practices. And uh, eventually we came up on uh, 
just a few things that we do a little bit differently than the rest of our Lone Star College campuses. So we emphasize mentoring pretty heavily. So all of our faculty members receive what we call a one course release to mentor first time in college students. Um, we focus heavily up on wraparound services. So, you know, we uh, are pretty aggressive in addressing food insecurity and technology uh, assistance and different things of that nature, homelessness, you know, um, and issues such as that. Uh, our courses are all eight weeks long. Uh, we, we found that that's great for the part-time working student. Um, and we've been able to increase the number of students we have that have uh, turned to full-time status. And then we take a very proactive approach to student assistance. So for instance, we survey our students every two weeks, short five question surveys, so that way we can stay ahead of things such as mental health issues or uh, you know, financial issues or whatever the case may be that students may be dealing with at the time. Uh, we try to proactively uh, take those issues on. Wow, there's a lot there. There's so much there. Linda, I got your text that you want to you want me to let you in the conversation. I need to be quiet. So I'm going to just let you take it from here. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, Quinton, it's so great to see you. Um, and uh, as we talked earlier, your uh, chancellor, Steve Head, is one of our board members of WGU Texas. And uh, when I first started at, at WGU, he and I had a conversation about uh, his desire to uh, uh, begin a online campus. And I read yesterday that Lone Star College uh, launched its new totally online campus. And I was just- Amazing. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> so I was wondering um, how, how, is, how are things going with uh, your campus in terms of uh, in-person now that we're starting to see um, more things opening up, people coming back to per, in, in person. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in Houston, uh, education and workforce related, and then also on your campus? How are things going? That's a great question. So, you know, I think COVID has changed some things. Um, and I think what normal was before COVID and what normal is now uh, uh, is a little bit different. And so we are on the process for the first time in a couple of years to be what we consider 100% back uh, starting this summer, uh, but we're not sure if the students are gonna be there yet. Uh, I can tell you right now, just across the system, many of the vice presidents at the different campuses are seeing the students are still kind of clinging to the online courses. They have gotten accustomed to those after a couple of years. So that's one of the things that we are watching pretty closely. Now our workforce programs, those are probably the exception to the rule with that in the sense that uh, they remain for the most part in face-to-face, -face, uh, especially like the honor manufacturing, uh, the uh, health-related workforce courses. Um, and so what we're seeing with them, with those particular areas is a, an increase. I would say that that's probably the fastest growing segment of our uh, population. You know, we're, Typically, one of the things that we're finding is that we're getting a lot of returning non-traditional students. And so the trend we typically see is that students will come to college, some they would do well right off, but then there will be students that, you know, for one reason or another, it would not work out for them. So they may go away for a couple of years, life happens, maybe have a family, whatever the case may be, and then they come back. When they come back, they typically move into workforce. 
And so right now, continuing on my campus, the average age of a workforce student is 31 years old. Um, and that's one of the things that, that we're, we're finding. Cool. Well, I know there's been a huge infusion of federal funds uh, to support uh, the reskilling, upskilling efforts of our colleges. Um, how are you all faring in those and being able to identify eligible uh, students? We're doing well, but you know, a lot of that's through partnerships, you know, and some of the things that we're doing. So um, I can tell you one project uh, we're working on that I'm very excited about. We're partnering with Centerpoint Energy in the city of Houston to see if we can uh, start building an electric vehicle charging program. Um, and so, you know, really we, our chancellor does a great job of putting together these advisory councils for certain subject areas, such as technology, such as health, such as auto manufacturing or whatever the case may be. And so we listen to them quite a bit. And so a lot of the work that we have gotten through federal dollars have been um, going towards these uh, programs that have been identified, you know, through our partners. That's the sound for a, a chargeable car, right? And I'm, you, I'm telling you, I think I got a sound for everything here. Uh, Quentin, I do want to take a step back because what you, you talked about access and equity, and I know that that's what you prided your career upon. I was reading a little bit about your bio and um, and you know uh, better than uh, I would at this point, especially working in a very large, large community college, that that um, uh, getting black men specifically back into the educational system is a challenge for colleges and universities across the country, across the nation, and and that is an important. It's important for so many reasons: for generational wealth, for access, for equity, for you know, foundation of higher education to advance society. All these reasons. It's like you know, COVID's created these just incredible consequences, and that's one that everybody's trying to figure out. What 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 do we need to do? I mean, what's the what are you guys doing? What needs to be done? Well, let me tell you, you know, one of the, my beliefs is that we kind of rethink what it means to be able uh, to achieve equity. Um, I think our general approach have always been to, uh, we're gonna educate this group of individuals in this community and then they're gonna go back and they're gonna be leaders and it's gonna change the community around. I think that that's part of it. But I also think that we have a responsibility to making sure that the next generation will not have to face the same circumstances that this generation faces. So we have to do more to be able to take away some of the barriers that um, people are facing whenever they come to college. Um, and that's why, you know, we do a lot of work partnering with the community for that particular purpose. What, what are those significant barriers? What are the ones that are standing out right now? I know it seems to all roll up to financial right that the, there's with the way the economy has been and now inflation the price of gas i mean you want to talk about a student it's funny because i've talked about this so many times a student who gets into a fender bender you know gets a 300 dollars bill and then says you know what i can't go to school anymore there was an event that took place that you can tie that back to whether that's the real reason the students dropping out or the using it as justification for why they can't continue but the price of gas alone is an event it's like it's this event and it's going week to week to week and if you're strapped you're strapped and the price of gas is not helping you get to and from school at a community college which what services students who are 
going from place to place, right? Uh, so what, what are you doing and how do you tackle these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the reasons why we went to eight week courses is because we know that when life happens to a student, um, you know, a car breaks down, you know, whatever the case may be, that could be the end of their, uh, you know, they're, they're going to college. So the example I often give is that if a student takes a class or taking four classes, uh, the car breaks down in November, then uh, they drop out and they lose all four classes and then they get into financial aid issues and so forth. Whereas with this model, if they take two classes at a time, if life happens in November, they at least have six credit hours under their belt. And that means they're more likely to be able to come back. And so those are the type of things that, you know, we, we look at, you know, the overall structure of the college. We also have a very, very, uh, um, strong student assistance uh, uh, network. So we send out a student assistance link every week to our students and we encourage them to be able to uh, ask for help. And so whenever a student will uh, submit a request, we have a network that meets weekly to figure out what it is that the student needs and who they need to be referred to. And so we treat each student on a case by case basis this uh, based on their specific needs. But I also want to take a step back and talk about the community work and things that we do there. So we live in Houston and, and we know if Houston suffers from anything, it's flooding. And so I have students, for instance, that have lost everything they had for three years in a row because of flooding. Why? Because their apartment complex is next to a bayou. Right? One of the things that we're trying to do more of as a college just participate in those community meetings that get that apartment complex relocated. But, you know, because if we don't deal with those circumstances, then all of our retention efforts is happening on our campuses and they're not gonna mean anything, right? So those are the type of things that we wanna partner with the community to address. You know, working with the local uh, 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 bus station, you know, to make sure that students who are taking public transportation that they can get to our campuses, right? You know, that's access also. So it's important to us, you know, going back to your original question about what do we do about these type of things when we're losing student, student, certain student populations, we have to be part of working with the community to address those barriers that they're facing long before they come to our doors. And when we do those type of things, then once they come to us, we feel like we have the model that works. We feel like we have the support that works, but we can't divorce ourselves from what they're going through to get to us. That's an important point, and I want to pass it to you, uh, Linda, in a second. But I, I, you know, you remind me of the importance of discussing the layers of student retention. It's easy to talk about student retention and go, oh, well, you have a student that leaves class or faculty members maybe not teaching them the way that you want or they're having some kind of conflict and you want to retain your students that are having financial troubles and you start to think about the layers within that. A student who can't get to school because they have to, there's not a bus route on there. You know, when it's almost like urban retention and suburban retention yes. and rural retention all have different layers, don't you think? Very much so, very much so. And that's, so that's part of what we have to do. It's important that the community is better because we're in it. And I, I can't stress that enough. Uh, my college at Houston North should look differently 
than the college at Montgomery, which is about 30 miles up the street. Why? Because our communities are different. And that's part of it. To your very, very point, each community have their own circumstances, their own barriers. And as a college, we need to adapt to those and not necessarily expect them to adapt to be able to get to us. I love that, Linda. Yeah, well, I, I liked what you were saying earlier about, uh, well, I like everything that you've been saying, but I, I really like how you're looking at the infrastructure and having to make changes um, to accommodate students better, you know, meeting them where they're at, putting students first. Um, and I was just wondering, uh, I was thinking about the eight week uh, semesters. And I remember back when this was first proposed to the coordinating board, it was Gregory Williams, I believe, yes. at Odessa College. Yes. And uh, it was an innovative idea at the time. Um, what do you think are the structural barriers today that we need to really tackle with our legislators, uh, either at the local, state, or federal level uh, that are creating those barriers for uh, expanding access. That's great. You know, if, if I could just give a quick plug to Dr. Williams, you know, we spent a week with him when we were developing Houston North, and he's still to this day a strong mentor for me. Um, this just paved the way for a lot of the great work that's happening. Right now, I think one of the barriers is how we define student success, because that impacts student support, excuse me, that impacts what we can fund and how we fund it. So a lot of the student assistance for basic needs that we provide, we have to provide through foundation funds, we have to provide through auxiliary funds, you know, because that's not defined as your classic student support. Um, if, you know, so I give you kind of some examples, you know, we have pantries on each of our campuses. Well, all of those are funded by foundation, you know, or auxiliary funds. You know, if I always said that if the state would allow us to use 1% of our operation but operating budgets towards student assistance, we could help so many students. You know, um, childcare is a, on another issue. And I, you know, I think about this all the time, you know, we, uh, we look at some of the barriers that are being faced and we want to improve college attainment in a particular zip code, for instance, you know, we notice that our penetration rate in our zip code is low, but then we notice that we have a lot of parents in those zip codes. And I'm thinking, just think about the investment in getting these parents to get their degree or get a certificate or get a credential to get a better paying job. Now that neighborhood all of a sudden become um, uh, more attractive to external businesses, different things of that nature, because why? It's more of an educated neighborhood, you know, they can get workers. Now, you know, we're rebuilding a community, but we're not, right now, our funding structure, because of how we define student support, does not allow us to make those type of investments uh, to help students to be able to complete. The purpose of education is to help learners discover their aptitudes and interests, develop their skills, and then deploy that knowledge to benefit themselves and others. The Charles Koch Foundation, a nonprofit grant-making organization, works with leaders in education to remove barriers that stand in the way of all learners reaching their potential. They support individualized and flexible models that improve access and quality for millions of Americans. 
They also support apprenticeship and upskilling programs that connect learners to in-demand jobs that match their skills and interests. The foundation is looking for new partners to challenge the status quo and transform the post-secondary education system. Learn more about their partnership opportunities and apply for a grant at ckf.org. You can also find them on Twitter at at C. Koch Foundation and LinkedIn by searching Charles Koch Foundation. Good point. Well, I um, was reviewing your, your resume and how you've really moved up uh, to this role. And I'm always interested in hearing people's personal stories of how you got here. So I'd love to just hear a, a little bit about your background and how you got to where you're at. Well, uh, you know, I think I've, I've been fortunate. Um, I always, I believe that it's important that we become whatever it is our institution needs us to be. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I've been in multiple roles here at, at Lone Star uh, during, you know, re, uh, maybe a reorganization or something like that. You know, we will need somebody to step in to be an academic vice chancellor or something along those lines. So that's part of how I, I got to the role. What I will tell you, my uh, the most significant story regarding my career is when I first started in higher education, which is about 20 years ago um, to this year. I started off as a part-time instructor, and then I moved into this temporary full-time role. The way it uh, was created was because our my institution at the time wanted to try to diversify the faculty. Uh, the faculty at the point was about 93% white, so it was a program that will allow somebody without necessarily the work experience to be able to have a temporary position up to two years and then compete for it. Well, I was able to get the position, but something happened when I did. Uh, there was some pushback, and so all of the part-time instructors in my department resigned. And I Thanks. remember... Yeah, and I remember at the time, I mean, I was devastated whenever I found out about it. And naturally, you know, you're embarrassed, want to quit. But fortunately, I had just asked my wife to marry me, my fiance at the time. So I had. Oh, I needed, yeah. <laughs> so I needed the job, right? So I kept my head down. And for the next seven years, you know, I just did whatever I had to do. Uh, I, you know, would teach the classes other than want to teach. I would work on multiple committees, and then I pursued my doctoral degree and received it. Well, after the seven years, it was this department meeting, and the dean at the time came in and said, hey, I'm resigning. I've accepted a position somewhere else. So all of my colleagues in the room decided they wanted to have a straw poll of who should be the next interim dean, and they voted me in. And so the president Fire. decided to um, uh, give me the job. And from that point on, you know, I was able to move up. And I say that story for the simple reason that um, the only reason I'm able to be here in this position and be fortunate to be here in this position is because I was given a chance 20 years ago, right? And part of what I hope that I'm able to do with my colleagues at Houston North is just give these students a chance. You know, there were people back then that didn't believe I deserved it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there were people back then and, you know, didn't believe I deserved it, but uh, they still gave it to me. And, you know, we have students every day in which some people may feel like they do not deserve it, but we need to give them that shot. And so, I think that's probably the most significant story um, 
in my career that has really helped me um, and helped me build a sense of strength and grit that you know you need in this position to be able to uh, do what I've been fortunate to be able to do. That's one of those stories that you almost end an episode on, you know what I mean? Because it's so good. And so now I'm, I have the pressure of having to continue the episode and have it be just as good that Quentin, you know, you just ended with the incredible story. So the only way I can do this appropriately, uh, Quentin, is to uh, ask you to play game here on the Edip Experience podcast and see if you're, are, are you willing to play a game with us today? Sure. And here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Higher Ed Word Association with your contestants today, Linda Battles and Dr. Quentin Wright. Uh, we are in for a treat, ladies and gentlemen. This is where I give you a word, Quentin and Linda, and you have to tell me the first words, phrases that come to your mind, and please elaborate or else for, it makes for a really short Higher Ed Word Association episode. Here we go. Hold on tight. This is going to be a bumpy ride. All right. The first word is going to go to Linda, so Quentin gets a little bit of, uh, of a chance to uh, to prepare uh, for this. So the first word we're going to go to Linda with is outcomes. Completion. Um, learning. Um, yes, so <laughs> that's what higher education should be about is outcomes. Quentin, over to you. Outcomes. Um. I think I think core, and I'm, when I say core, I mean the core of everything that we do. Um, I, I agree that it, it needs to be about the outcomes at the end of the day, that our students are able to do the things that will help them to be successful. And that's all based upon the outcomes that, that we have developed. Okay, you got a feel for it now, Quentin? All yes. Right, you're up next, here we go. Remember, whatever you feel, you gotta go with what you feel. Okay. No, Non-traditional students. Hard workers, dedicated, uh, second chance. Um, so I think about the individuals who have uh, lived life for a little while and they want to come back. And these are typically very, very good students. Uh, sometimes they are facing quite a bit. Uh, but they show us a level of grit and fortitude that I think that we should admire and embrace greatly. Love that. Linda, non-traditional students. Are becoming traditional students. Uh, I think uh, the majority of students in higher education today um, are your older uh, working adults. Um, we have seen a a decline in uh, direct high school to college enrollment here in Texas. Um, but we're seeing such a vast number of adult learners um, who need support and need access to higher education. Um, so I, I would say that non-traditional is really no longer a appropriate term to describe our student body in higher education today. All right. Next one and last one, non-credit education. I would say necessary um, part, it should be part of our, our fabric. Uh, the way we serve communities is it's vast. Um, I don't think we should limit ourselves to being able to just help a group of people one way. 
um, you know, you have companies that uh, close and, you know, people need short uh, certificates. Uh, people need to be able to get to work pretty quickly. Uh, it's a way that we can react to the needs of the community without necessarily having to go through uh, several of the steps that we need to go through, you know, for um, to get program approval. So um, I think it's, it's necessary and it, it needs to be part of our repertoire as higher education leaders. Linda, non-credit education. Uh, ditto. <laughs> I agree. We're going to need to go to the judges and ask if uh, ditto is an acceptable answer. Um, <laughs> go ahead, Linda. Uh, well, you know, I, I think it is important to offer those uh, non-degree uh, offerings. I think um, people need to have uh, opportunities to have that um, opportunity. Uh, I think micro credentials yes. that are stackable towards a degree are probably more effective. And um, I, I, I really think that those are important. Um, so absolutely, I agree. Well, you know, um, guys, this I love I love this game because it tells you really what we think about things when you put on the spot. And so I'm going to need to go to the judges and see who won this episode of Higher Ed Word Association. Um, judges, did Linda Battles win this? Um, I, I would like to state that it's impossible for a co-host to win. Uh, did Quentin Wright win? Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of Higher Ed Word Association. <laughs> I would I would say I think Linda won that one by far. No. Uh, I have no. such admiration for. Her. You know the uh, email I'm going to get work. later from Linda. It's going to be she's going to get me. Um, for, <laughs> no. uh, Quentin, no, no. I, uh, you know the reason I asked about non-credit education. There's always you know I have this bank of words that I choose from, and um, I thought this one was so relevant to talk about with you because and for both of you. Um, there is a big value in the question of, of uh, higher education and the degree itself. Um, it's funny, I posted the other day on LinkedIn. I can't remember what I was talking, oh, I was talking about my book. I'm writing a book. I'm taking all these podcast episodes okay. from all these presidents, all you guys, and I'm, we're putting it into a book because who's going to go listen to 420 episodes of the podcast? I mean, Linda, you listen to a lot. I do know that, and I'm sorry I appreciate you so much. But we're going to put all these insights in a book, and I put it out there on LinkedIn, and somebody came, um, a, a, good, a good friend of the podcast, he comes and he says, you want college presidents are the absolute worst people to predict the future of higher education if you consider past performance. And I went, hmm, I don't know if I agree, but, uh, you know, we are the ones, we are, and I say administrators, are the ones that are talking to these students, and we are hearing from them, and we, they're telling us what they want and what they don't want. What are your thoughts about the value of a college education in today's society? Well, I think we need to be working towards making sure uh, that education is valuable in our society. So, um, you know, we, we sometimes uh, get to a point in which we want to stay the same, so to speak, and then hope that we can convince, you know, the rest of the world that, you know, we're the way to go. I think those days are gone. I think what we have to do is that we have to look at the needs, uh, whether once again, it's through a non-credit, whether it's through a workforce, whether it's through a transfer, whatever the case may be, whether it's the way we offer programs, whether we're uh, the structure of our programs, the structure of our college experience. 
I think we have to work to make sure that it remains valuable. Um, that's on us. Um, and I think when we do that and we continually evolve, we do not kind of keep things the way that they are, then I think that the value will always be there. Um, I just finished a good book, uh, The Entrepreneurship in Higher Education. Uh, and it talked a lot about some of the, the colleges that are closing right now. And part of that is that the colleges stayed the same. They kept the same model, um, even though they saw that all everything around them were, were, was changing. Um, and so I think that that's on us. If we, we do what we need to do, a higher ed degree will always, or credential will always remain valuable. Linda, do you agree? 100%. Oh, thank you. Yeah, th thank you for your agreement, Linda. Go ahead. Do you, is it, what, do you have anything to add in uh, your normal voice? Oh, I'm sorry. You got me cracking up on that one. Um, no, I agree 100%. <laughs> 100%. I, you know, I, I think that. I think that the pandemic has really accelerated that uh, need to change the way that higher education is delivered and really meeting students where they're at, um, putting them at the center of everything that we do. And um, I think that's what's going to ultimately determine uh, the future of higher education is that willingness to innovate, that willingness to see beyond what we've done for centuries. And uh, we've got to respond uh, differently. I, I was just uh, reading this book, The Great Upheaval uh, yes. by Arthur Levine and Scott Van Pelt. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting take on the past, present, and the uncertain future. So um, absolutely agree 100% with you, Quentin. I think those guys are coming on our podcast here uh, soon from uh, the great upheaval. Um, and you guys talk about the books that you're reading pretty soon, uh, hopefully will be commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Dr. Joel Susio, Kate Colbert with insight from Elvin Freitas. Uh, there we go, anyway. Um, Quentin, I, I, you know, I have to get in the uh, self-promotion when it, when it makes sense, guys. Um, but, but, but I, I, I want you to self-promote a little bit, uh, Quentin, about Lone Star College, because this is not a small operation for people that aren't familiar with Lone Star College. You're talking about a massive undertaking in community college system. Can you talk about the infrastructure a little bit and how vast the system is? We are. So we are uh, about 99,000 students. Uh, we cover about 1,400 uh, square miles. Uh, we have 20 locations uh, throughout the kind of northern uh, Houston region. Uh, we uh, have about a half a billion dollar budget uh, that we work with. Uh, and we uh, have over 200 different types of programs that, that we offer. Um, and so we, we try to constantly improve and try to provide whatever it is that this region needs from us. Amazing. Love it. I love it. I love it. It's that's a lot of people to serve 99,000 people. Um, and all the, the successes and ch trials that come with working in higher ed with students and adult students and working and kids and families. And Linda, you have a lot of experience in this area too at WGU Texas and doing a lot of the same work. Uh, I'm gonna give Quentin our final two questions, but I wanna know if you wanna slide one in before I get to the end. 
I just want to uh, just really comments and, and thank you, Quentin, for being in that role and doing what you do on a daily basis. I really admire uh, the work that you're doing and uh, the mindset that you have, uh, the growth mindset that you have for students. Uh, I think it's a, it, you play a very important role and for uh, students to see you in action in the community, working with the community and establishing partnerships because, you know, we're, we're so better when we're working together and we make a bigger impact. So uh, I am, I'm excited and I hope that uh, we can continue uh, talking and, and collaborating. We have a wonderful partnership with Lone Star College and again, you have a wonderful chancellor. So uh, thank you for being here today and sharing your story with us. Thank you. Well, you've got two more questions, so you can't go yet. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so, so the first one is, I get, I, like I said, the self-promotion is important, but I, I think for everybody to know, uh, about Lone Star uh, College and, and the work you guys are doing is important. Um, so what did we not say about Lone Star College Houston North, about Lone Star College in general? Anything that you want to say about the system, your uh, your branch of that system, speeches you're giving, success things you're putting into place, anything at all? And then secondly, what do you see as the future of higher education? Great. You know, the 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 only thing I would mention is that I'm very proud of our students. Um, when we started Lone Star College Houston North, we started uh, knowing that the students in my, the kind of small 90 square mile service area, that's part of that 1400 square mile service area, um, was coming from kind of the lowest income areas within our system. Um, and our completion rates were not where we wanted them to be. Um, within the first year, the students, I went from last to the top of the system in course completion rates. Um, you know, our black students increased by 12 percentage points, our Hispanic students by seven uh, percentage points, uh, just literally in, in a year's time. Uh, so I'm very proud of the students. You know, one of the things that we try to say all the time is that with the right structure and the right support, every student can be successful. And these students, they're showing that every day. Um, and also that's that's the, the one thing I would share with that. Now as far as what the future of higher ed uh, may be, I think we're gonna move very much into a model in which our connection uh, to our industry partners is gonna be much more intimate than uh, what we've seen in the past. Um, I, I think we are going to build uh, programs. I think we're going to build initiatives with partners. You know, I, I look at, you know, uh, where the P-TECH revolution was uh, years ago, and then I look at where it is now in the state of Texas, and you're, you're seeing, you know, every, you know, I think fourth, fifth high school uh, is trying to start a P-TECH program. I think this movement towards being able to tailor the education of a student uh, to a specific industry, uh, we're gonna see that happen more and more. Um, and also, I, I think that's gonna be the future. I don't think we will ever get away from the base liberal arts. That's what we need, you know, that, that's very important. But I also see us becoming much more intimate with all of our partners. Well, there you have it, guys. Another incredible episode of the Edub Experience. Of course, I think my three-time guest co-host. Now, I don't know how many times she's been. She's been coming up, and she's getting better and better each time. 
She's Linda Battle. She's Chancellor of WGU Texas. Linda, you're getting just now you're I think you're a pro now. Well, I hey, thank you for giving me the opportunity to practice. I feel much more confident. So you're owning it. You're owning it all. <laughs> of course, you have to own it when you have a guest of his stature on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. His name is Dr. Quentin Wright. He's president of Lone Star College Houston North, the founding president. Quentin, did you have a good edup experience today? It was great. And it was a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Bellows. Pleasure speaking with you, Joe. Uh, thank you for, for having me today. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just edupped. Too many learners are being left behind by the current one-size-fits-all model of education. We here at EdUp and our friends at the Charles Koch Foundation see a better path forward. The Charles Koch Foundation supports innovators in education who are building and scaling new pathways to allow all learners to discover their potential. By changing the way we think about education, we can unlock opportunities for millions more Americans. To learn more about the Charles Koch Foundation support of individualized education, visit ckf.org.